Three, two, two, one. one. LFG, homie. Yo, LFG. <laughs> Let's go. Who's in? I think that was a great way to start this episode, Dan, because we just talk about how to bring listeners in, and I think if we show a lot of enthusiasm, <laughs> pair that go. with an LFG. Let's go. I think people are ready to saddle up and ride. Let's go. 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 Come on. Lego. 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 Man, it's good to be back in the, the uh, this is the Dunny Redo. The Dunny Redo. Yeah. yeah. We're back. So we're in the we're in an office, a different office than we typically record that has all the furniture from the Dunny, from the original Dunny, which uh, we're coming up on three years, man. Yeah, three years of repelling listeners. Yes, three years of repelling listeners. I think there's a lot of wins in this, really. One, this continues somehow. Two, we haven't sued each other, nor have we broken up yet. <laughs> what would, we, what would, we, what would we sue each other for, and what would be? What would be attempting to get from the other person? That's what I think we should do in our spare time is like you go to your corner, I'll go to my corner and we drop lawsuits toward one another yeah. and then just see like what we come up with that we can yeah. take from the other person. I, I, I realized in my question, there's lots of things I would sue you for. I don't know what I would pursue to acquire. Like, what could I you don't... actually sue yeah. me? Yeah. <laughs> like, what'd you like get there me? are reasons that I would sue you. Yeah, yeah. Those are yeah. what I would be trying to get from that. I'm. I'm really unsure of. Yeah, you know what it makes me think of, and our listeners will probably um, become more familiar with this if they stick with the episode, is the idea of the unspecial collection. Like, <laughs> what What are you going to sue me for? What are you going to try to take from my unspecial collection? Uh, that, that should be what the listeners, for this episode, one yeah. of the highlights is the unspecial collection. Keep an ear out for that. Yeah, I think that's what you could take me for. Yeah. I, I Which could would be a loss on your end. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know whether I want to curate the unspecial collection. <laughs> what a joy that would be! Yeah. <laughs> it would be interesting. Yeah. I, you know, no lie, it would be very, very yeah. interesting. All right, here's a few uh, screenshots where Cody was trying to uh, silence his phone and accidentally took a screenshot of his his phone. <laughs> a couple of gum wrappers, uh, coffee grounds. Yeah, that's about what you get, man. <laughs> here's what. Do you ever get those? Here's one for me that's in my own special collection is yeah. uh, um, the picture of whatever you're currently listening to because you're trying to change songs <laughs> and accidentally hit it. the button. So that's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. Do you ever get those? I get those, yeah. yeah. And you probably get those times where my girls steal the phone and then just hold down the picture button. Oh, did they do that? Yeah, you get a burst and it's like, oh, I just took 1,034 photos. <laughs> so, yeah. So it'd be like a, a movie. It'd be if like you a just movie. Flip through them. Yeah, and it's usually like a JoJo or Poppy or something, you know? <laughs> just following them around the yeah, house. Just following them around the house. <laughs> or are they just laying there and it's just the same photo? <laughs> no, I think it's usually more like that. Yeah. <laughs> fear. Fear in their eyes in either scenario. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, for, fortunately for the listenership, uh, we have an interview today. We do. We're going beyond flag. Yeah. It's been a minute, man. We're going beyond flag with Hank Hassel, the principal cataloger at Klein Library, which is located in the heart of the Northern Arizona University. Hashtag go Jumberlax. Come on. LFG. Hank was born in the booming metropolis of Price, Utah, and spent much of his life exploring that area prior to leaving for college and then joining the Peace Corps where he taught mathematics in Malaysia. He earned a bachelor's and master's degree from the U of the U. Hank taught grades 6 through 12 in Penguich, Utah, prior to accepting a position at Klein Library here in Flagpole in 1980. In this position, he is charged with cataloging and identifying all documents that flow into the library. In addition to cataloging, Hank has assisted in special collections work. He wrote a book titled Rainbow Bridge, an Illustrated History, and recently curated an exhibit at the library titled Images of a Lost World, Glen Canyon on the Colorado. Images of a Lost World features the scenic wonders of a pristine, pre-dam Glen Canyon from several perspectives, including a modern history of the canyon, its prehistoric Native American inhabitants, and the archaeological resources once found in Glen Canyon. Yeah, it's a great exhibit. Special collections over at Klein Library. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, if you get a chance. Uh, Hank's still doing tours. Phenomenal piece of history right, right here in our backyard. No doubt. In this interview, Hank speaks about his book, the region in southern Utah and northern Arizona that he just studied and becomes so familiar with. He shares about the history of that region with a true passion for the beauty of the area. And then beyond cataloging, writing, and curating, you'll learn early in the interview that, that Hank is a man of many, 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 
many traits. Yeah, and you cannot add enough minis there. He's he's got his hand in a lot of different pots. Yeah, I was about ready to just like I was blown away. It's like a modern day Renaissance man. That is for sure. Hank Castle, the modern man, modern day Renaissance man. Well, thanks for joining us as we go beyond flag with Hank Hassel. Welcome to Beyond Flag, a Beyond the Pines production. Join your hosts, Chinchilla Nice and Dan Phillips, as they connect with this area by learning more about the people that contribute to it. Underproduced and overstated, but never berated. Thanks for tuning in as we go Beyond Flag from Le Chateau des Arbres. All right. Well, we'd like to welcome Hank Hassel to the Dunny today. Welcome, Hank. Thank you. Look glad to be here. Oh, we're happy to have you. So would you begin by telling us a little bit about what it is you do contemporaneously? Well, contemporaneously, my employment is with Northern Arizona University. I work for the Klein Library as principal cataloger. Every item that comes into the library, whatever the format, I catalog it. Um, I also do some work for special collections. Uh, right now, I'm working on the uh, a donation given to us by Martin Litton combination of photographs and documents in the outside do you want to know about the outside world or is that, yeah yeah know? what else do you do well i'm a father of two little girls uh one 13 one 11 still going to school uh my wife's name is francie and we're dedicated to a full-time bringing up these two babies i've <laughs> got a long way to go yet um as far as outside interests are concerned i love writing i have you know, some projects in mind. One of the things I really would like to do, if there's time someday, write a biography of St. John Fisher, who was a uh, bishop under Henry VIII, suffered for his faith. I love gardening, have a good vegetable garden, have a nice yard, lots of flowers in the summer. I have a stamp collection, which is my pride and joy. I play the viola. We have a little piano quartet piano, violin, viola, cello, meets weekly, and we enjoy performing music together, mostly the Romantic era, uh, stuff of that nature. That's basically how I spend my time. What is it that you don't do? <laughs> yeah, man, it's like a Hank Castle in a nutshell. Yeah. Right? Everything. I've got, like, yeah. questions Jeez. flowing through my mind right now. Yeah. Does principal yeah. cataloger mean you get a boss around the other catalogers? Yeah. Well, yeah. there aren't any other catalogers anymore. Oh, I'm that's it. a bummer. Well, the thing is, we've you know when you make the big shift from print to electronic, uh, I don't have to deal with the electronic stuff. It usually comes with its own access. So basically, what I do is whatever comes in the way of hard copy, whether it's a media item or a print item or a collection of documents or photographs, that kind of stuff. That's the stuff I deal with. Uh, I'd be curious to hear a little bit if you can share about uh, the thing you're working on that. Martin Litton mm -hmm. was able to, you're able to yeah. come across them. I'm just curious, how does that unfold and what does that entail? Well, right now we're still in the really preliminary stages of organizing it. Okay. We had a student worker go through it and put stuff into folders and so forth, but she wasn't really very well acquainted with the material. And so it's my job to go back through it and see what I can do with identification, with subject orientation, that sort of thing, stuff that she wasn't familiar with. And we'll see how it develops from then on. I just started that. I'm in the first box, and there are like six or seven boxes of stuff. Yeah, is the photographs, writings, what are, what are the contents? Yeah, that's basically it. There's personal papers. There's uh, tr big transparencies, the 3 by 5 size transparencies. There's 35-millimeter transparencies. There's black and white photographs. Uh, some of it's Grand Canyon, some of it's California. It runs the gamut. How cool. Does it, like a phone call come in? How does that yeah. even arrive yeah. at your front door? You know, um, when I first came here back in 1980, we were just a little library and we weren't particularly well known. But over the years, our collection has developed to the point where now we're developing a quite 
extensive reputation of a depository for Colorado Plateau materials. And so the word has spread that this is a good place if you want to leave your stuff. And so we've been collecting more and more uh, rather high-profile collections. For example, we got the uh, collection of David Munch. We had his father's collection, Chozo's collection of photographs, and now he's got David's collection. Hopefully, maybe Martin will give us his. Yes, that's, mm -hmm. the, that's the son that's currently working. Um, so, you know, we've... People, yeah, they people arrive on our front door and drop off their stuff. <laughs> I did that. I donated uh, my entire slide collection recently to the Klein Library, 5,551 slides mm -hmm. all over the Colorado Plateau. I know they have a good home, and they'll be available for researchers, people who are interested in seeing what the place looked like uh, when I was there. Uh, we have a lot, a lot of slides in that collection that of uh, places we didn't have much in the way of before. It'll add something to the collection mm -hmm. and be research-worthy, I think. So in part, yeah, NAU has become known to be a repository for this, but it seems like you probably have a role in that. I have never worked formally for special collections, but I've done a lot of work for them. Okay. Uh, this started back in 1993. We got a collection from the Brownlee family. They both died, uh, Alex and Dorothy, and they left this world with no heirs. So they had, there was a law firm that was trying to settle their affairs, and they had this whole collection of slides taken back in the 1950s. This is back before there were the dams and the power plants and the paved roads and all that stuff. And Alex and Dorothy used to spend their time out here driving their little Nash Rambler all over the place. I don't know how they got cars some of the places they did. But uh, their lawyer said, would you like this collection? We said, sure. We got it. None of the slides were labeled. Not a one of them was labeled. So the people upstairs had no idea where these pictures were taken. They called me up when I was in the reference department downstairs in the Klein, and they said, could you help us? So I went upstairs, and sure enough, I looked through it, and I could identify just about all of it. And as a result, therefore, whenever the Klein got a collection where they felt my expertise would be useful, they called me up, and I'd go up and do the work for them. That's how I got the Martin Litton stuff. And I worked on the Brownlee collection, the uh, Sprang collection, Eisman collection, uh, Tad Nichols collection, so forth. So, mm -hmm. what does the process look like of um, pinning down location and time? Like, I imagine you're getting all these slides, and there's just I don't know the way it lends in my mind is photos of the desert, basically. Yeah, but they're you know you. You don't take a picture unless it's a picture of something nice. And, you know, most of those places that Brownlees went, I'd been. In fact, what was interesting, the, as to dating, most of the slides have dates stamped on them. So we knew about when the pictures were taken. It turned out that the Brownlees were in the Needles District of Canyonlands National Park, exactly the same summer I was, and it took a lot of the same pictures, which I thought was interesting. But... Uh, yeah, for as far as locations was concern, were concerned, these were places that I had been and I recognized and was able to give a pretty good locational description. So you're able to judge those against experience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, I heard you say that people don't take things, uh, photos of nice things. I'll take you through my photo roll later. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I'll show you a lot of pictures yeah. that are not worth cataloging in this world. Well, you know, you do get some <laughs> pictures of, you know, somebody snapped and you wondered why in the world they take this picture. But, yeah. you know, most of the stuff that I've been asked to work with have been pictures of significant scenic yeah. value and places that I knew and recognized. Yeah. Cool. It'd be great if you took all those photographers and you picked one photo that you asked yourself the question, why? Yeah. Did they take this one? yeah. It'd be like the opposite of a specials collection. Yeah. It'd be the yeah. unspecial yeah. collection. <laughs> special collection. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the region we're mostly talking about is this Glen Canyon area. So uh -huh. you, you mentioned Canyonlands, so southern southern Utah, northern Arizona. Mm -hmm. How did, you, how did you get into all this? I, I'm really curious to know about um, maybe your own connection to your work and uh, I guess this piece of land in general. This goes back a ways. When I was growing up, I was not outdoorsy type. I preferred to sit in my room and read books. And my dad was always dragging me out on hiking trips to the Uinta Mountains so he could go fishing. 
And this was back in the days when the equipment wasn't very good. We were using old metal army packs and, you know, old army sleeping bags and all of this stuff was terrifically heavy. There was no freeze-dried food. There was none of that stuff. We were lugging canned goods in the backpacks and stuff like that. I hated every minute of this. But, <laughs> Tell you us know, what you really think. Yeah. Looking back on it, my dad planted the seed and it eventually sprouted. Okay. And, yeah, uh, when I came back from the Peace Corps, that's when I really got going. I made contact with some... Uh, people in the Sierra Club chapter in Salt Lake City, and they had sponsored outings. And a lot of the outings were in the uh, area where I lived. I got a teaching job in Panguitch, so I was right next to Bryce Canyon and close to the Escalante and all of that country. And uh, they got me going. And then I started exploring on my own. Everything just kind of snowballed from there. I just kind of went nuts. <laughs> I guess my, so. My dad had given me... My dad has... Uh, was county agricultural agent, and he had to take a lot of pictures. And so he had one of the first 35-millimeter slide cameras that was available for ordinary folk to take pictures, little Argus C3, mm -hmm. and he gave me one of those. And it didn't have the built-in light meter, and it didn't have the SLR, didn't have any of that. So you had to have a separate light meter and so on. And so I started taking pictures, and every outing just became another invitation to take more pictures. So I was kind of... Enjoyed taking pictures and going on hikes and doing all that kind of stuff. I did a lot of work, uh, hikes with other people, but a lot of works, a lot of uh, works, a lot of hikes on my own. I, I can't skip over Peace Corps. So, <laughs> where did you go serve for the Peace Corps? I was in Malaysia. Okay, and how I, many? I taught in two teacher training colleges, uh, the Malayan Teacher College Kuala Lumpur in Pantai Valley, and then the uh, Language Institute in Kuala Lumpur. Yeah. I taught mathematics. Uh, they were preparing students to uh, be dual teachers of language and mathematics, and I yeah. taught them their math. Mm -hmm. What was that experience like? Well, it had its good moments and its bad moments. Um, I suffered a lot from culture shock, hmm. which a lot of people will tell you happens. And uh, But boy, for a, from a standpoint of a teaching experience, it was absolutely magnificent. My students at the Malayan Teacher College, my God, what a bunch. Those kids never came to class unprepared, not even once. Not one student was ever unprepared on any given day. Those kids worked themselves absolutely silly. Uh, I could scarcely believe uh, the dedication those kids had. It was a bit of culture shock when I came home and started teaching in American schools to see what contrast really was. <laughs> What were the differences? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, my students didn't come prepared to class every day, let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To say the least. Yeah, yeah. to say the yeah. least. Where were you living when you came back to the States, did you say? Uh, I got a job teaching school in Panguitch, Utah, Panguitch. Garfield County School District. Yeah. I taught in grade 6 to 12. Yeah. I taught in a given day. I would teach everything from a remedial 6th grade through calculus. Wow. wow. Okay. And uh, yeah, Penguin is the doorstep for yep. uh, Zion, Bryce. Oh, yeah. You bet, boy. Brian Head, Canyonlands. So they say weekends coming. I was out on the trail. You're yeah. out there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the doorstep, both directions. Yep. You can just get mm -hmm. all over there. Yep. It was a great place to be. Yeah. Why do you think it clicked for you, the hiking and the backpacking, after? Was it after the Peace Corps? Mm -hmm. Not to yep. say that the Peace Corps was a linchpin, but why then versus. Not earlier. You can't, I can't answer that question because I have no idea. That's why, why that all suddenly took hold. I had no camping equipment. I had no gear, nothing. The first backpack I bought was this orange piece of equipment from Sears and Roebuck that was put together with uh, Phillips screws. You had to take along a screwdriver on your backpack because you <laughs> had to keep putting the thing back together again. Uh, I was still they using would jostle, my, yeah. they would jostle and they would come loose. Yeah, I was uh, still using my dad's old army sleeping bag. You know, I, I didn't know anything at all about this stuff. You know, I can't say why it clicked. It really did. It just did and it just took over. Yeah. Once I got going, there was no stopping me. It's funny to hear you describing these fishing trips as a kid, like hauling all this metal up into the woods and that sort of thing. And, yeah. Uh, hating it. Absolutely hating it. And then somewhere along the uh, the path of life, that just changed for you. Mm -hmm. And I'd be curious to hear a little bit about what did bring you to Flagstaff. Was it the opportunity at Klein? Well, yeah, I got a job. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I had, when I got out of library school, I had applications 
for every job that I could think of. Okay. Everything that came down the pike, I was applying for. And uh, I, the first job I got was working at the Navajo Nation Library out at Window Rock. And that was not a pleasant experience. And so when the job at Flagstaff came along, uh, I applied for it. And fortunately, I got it. I was not their first choice. I was the third choice. The first two choices turned them down. That's why I got the job. Been here ever since. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say that's 43 years. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. I put down roots, I stay. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) must have clicked. Yeah. Well, it was a good job, and I enjoyed what I was doing, and I liked the place. Yeah. And it wasn't far from the same hiking environment that I had in Panguitch. So Mm -hmm. I got out the Grand Canyon, did all the trails. Mm -hmm. There were only two trails that I in the Grand Canyon I haven't done. One was North Bass and the other was Nankaweep. I had uh, permits for both. The South, the North Bass Trail, they had the permit and then it was an October trip. It snowed heavily on the North Rim, couldn't get out there. Uh, the Nankaweep Trail, we had just the opposite experience. It was an early May trip and the weekend we were supposed to go, the temperatures at Phantom Ranch had hit like 120 and uh, I thought, there's no way coming back out of Nankaweep even if you got an early start, you're you're fully exposed all the way up that trail. I thought nobody'd survive that, so we went in Perea, did Perea instead. So mm-hmm. I, those two trails uh-huh. I never did. Yeah. North and South Rim, all the trails. Yeah, wow. Pretty much. Do you have a favorite? Oh boy. Or a favorite experience? I loved them all, but uh, it'd be hard. I'd be hard pressed to to sit here and say, oh, this was definitely the primary experience, because yeah. you know they they all had their moments. But, you know, by the time I got going on those, especially those disused trails, a lot of them have been so heavily used, there was no route-finding problem anymore. Mm. You know, you just, you just, you could follow the trails easily. All the guidebooks say, you know, you have to look for this cairn or look for that draw or look for this juniper bush or something. I had no problem like that at all. Yeah, it was one of the first ones I did was Grandview. We took off down there and, and got down to the to Horseshoe Mesa and then took off on the uh, left-hand side down into uh, Hermit Creek and then on way over. Mm-hmm. That was a great trip. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that was cool. Yeah. How, how have you seen, like you're saying, there was time, like you basically just see the trail now, but I'd be curious to hear how you've seen even, uh, whether it's the canyon or the town of Flagstaff change over the last 43 years. Well, I haven't seen a lot of change in the canyon. Uh, fortunately, the Park Service keeps a lid on what activities are permitted and what aren't. One of the things that I've noticed about hiking the Grand Canyon, back in my day, <laughs> there you go. I can say that now when I'm almost 80 years old, back in my day, I could decide, get up on a Saturday morning and say, I think I'll go out and do this trail. I drive up to the South Rim, go to the little backcountry office, which is this little room which was connected to the visitor center. They'd give me that permit and off I'd go. I didn't have to make any reservations and that kind of stuff. I just went. Yeah. Nowadays... If you want to hike in June, you got to put in your permit for February and that kind of stuff. I, you know, that drives me nuts, but, you know. How did the indigenous peoples see this region prior to, um, like, the current photographs and the current history we have of it? How did the, What do we know about the indigenous peoples in that area? Well, interestingly, uh, there's a lot we know and a lot we don't. Mm-hmm. Focusing on Glen Canyon specifically, um, when it was obvious that Glen Canyon was going to be flooded, uh, the federal government contracted with the Museum of Northern Arizona here in Flagstaff and the University of Utah to go into the Glen Canyon region and do a historical and archaeological survey of the resources that were there and catalog as much of it as they could before the reservoir would obliterate it. They found a lot of stuff. They learned a lot of things. They found a lot of things that they didn't quite understand. One of the things they discovered was that the Glen Canyon country was not utilized in any kind of uniform fashion. It tended to be spotty, and it tended to be infrequent. Uh, apparently, the native peoples in the Glen Canyon area used the area as temporary agriculture, as a storage area, uh, sometimes rarely for residents. We have found evidence of native peoples living as far back in the canyon countries, the basket maker era, which is about 300 AD, Hmm. up until about 1300 AD. Sometime between 1250 and 1300 AD, the area started to empty out. And by AD 1300, there was no one left, no one left, 
we are certain of two things. Number one, by 1300, the canyon country was pretty much empty, and we are also certain that no one ever came back. Oh, really? Yeah, it really is a, a remarkable story. Uh, it's one that we can date with some certainty, but we are far, far from understanding what happened. Mm -hmm. And it was not only the Glen Canyon country where this happened, the Fremont people to the north in the Uinta Basin of Utah, eastern and central Utah, disappeared at almost exactly the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, why? Mm -hmm. We have no idea. So, as I say, as far as the native peoples of uh, prehistory are concerned, there's a great deal we know, a great deal we don't. There were plenty of settlements around the area, the Puebloans uh, in eastern Arizona and, mm -hmm. uh, and around there, the tribes in the Grand Canyon, the Hualapai and the Supai, mm -hmm. the Utes up to the north, uh, mm -hmm. they were populating in that area, but as far as that central region around the Glen Canyon country uh, and the Four Corners region, very, almost nothing. Of course, it wasn't a really hospitable area for people to live. I mean, <laughs> face it, it was the resources that were available yeah. were pretty scant. In that time frame of 380 to 1300, mm -hmm. are there any indications for sites that were seen as um, special? I know that we can't really, it, it's only conjecture mm -hmm. to define what they viewed as an area, but are there areas that have more petroglyphs or signs of symbolism? In, the, in our Glen Canyon exhibit, I've got several uh, petroglyph examples, petroglyph and petrograph examples. There weren't a lot of those in the Glen Canyon country, but what they were, some of them were quite unique and some quite, uh, quite common. So, you know, not a lot of evidence, but some. And mm -hmm. what there is is quite interesting. And then from there, it's only conjecture, speculation to say, oh, they really um, valued this region or they saw some significance here in this there region. There are two areas in Glen Canyon that, uh, where the settlement was most pronounced or use was most pronounced, I guess is a better way to put it, uh, Moki Canyon and Lake Canyon. Mm -hmm. Those two areas that seem to attract the most attention to the native peoples in mm -hmm. prehistoric times. Mm -hmm. By volume of what's there? Yep, by volume of the artifacts that were left and the evidences that were uh, remaining before mm -hmm. the dam, uh, those two areas seem to have the most activity. And you you collected illustrations and wrote a bit about Rainbow Bridge in mm -hmm. particular, is that right? Was there an altar or something that was there but then was destroyed pretty soon after well, other explorers came through? there was a little structure directly under the bridge itself that was there when the Discovery Expedition came through in 1909. Mm -hmm. When uh, Neil Judd was one of the original members of the Discovery Party, uh, he subsequently became an archaeologist in his own right. And when he visited the area uh, a couple of decades later, the little altar, the little structure, whatever it was, was gone. Mm -hmm. uh, what happened to it in the meantime, we don't know. Mm -hmm. As they say, whether it was deliberately destroyed or simply a casualty of careless feet, we don't know. Mm -hmm. But there is, there is an ancient Anasazi structure actually in the monument. There are a couple of, uh, of sites where we can identify that there was work on flint arrowheads, that kind of thing, uh, within the, the monument. So, yeah, the native peoples knew about it. They also pecked a trail, um, which actually leads, if you follow it all the way, all the way to the summit of Rainbow Bridge. As I stated in my book, why'd they do this? Was it because they appreciated the scenery? Perhaps. Mm -hmm. You know, they may have been as appreciative of the scenery as we were, mm -hmm. even though these were people who were fighting for their lives on a day-to-day -day basis, just trying to get enough to eat. But still, there seemed to be that appreciation for something quite remarkable, and Rainbow Bridge seemed to be that. Yeah, do you mind sharing a little bit about your book, the title and uh, Well, it's called Rainbow Bridge and Illustrated History. Okay. I don't believe in cutesy titles. <laughs> I just like to, to say what the yeah. book's about. Um, call it as you see it. <laughs> when, I was, when I was working with the Brownlee Collection back in 93, he had a lot of pictures of pre-dam Glen Canyon, some of which are in the exhibit, by the way. And I got the idea in my head that nobody had really done a history of Rainbow Bridge. And here was a national monument where, you know, amazing piece of, of geology and scenery, and nobody had much researched its history. I knew 
from further research that the Klein Library had just about everything I needed to write that book. I didn't have to travel to Washington, D.C. or anyplace else. We had all the stuff. And so it became a simple matter of sitting down, organizing it, and getting everything together, and sitting down and writing the thing. It turned out to be a remarkable adventure, mm -hmm. and one that I really enjoyed doing. I'm quite proud of the book. It's, uh, it was a, a good exercise. What did you, you, right there, you kind of alluded to, like, it was a big project to tackle or a good learning experience. There was something in the way you said that that made it sound like it was um, both challenging and really rewarding. Yeah, would you summarize well, that process? Anytime you sit down to write a book, it's a challenge. There are always questions that come up as you're writing and you think, boy, I wish I had the answer to this question, and you have to go off and try to find the answer. Mm -hmm. uh, I ended up getting stuff from the Bureau of Reclamation Library in Washington, D.C., and the uh, uh, Government Library in Tucson, for example. He had mm -hmm. the documents that I needed. And it was also an enjoyable experience because this was a country that I've for which I had deep love. To be privileged to tell its story was, I think, a, a very rewarding experience. You spoke a bit about the indigenous peoples and what little we do know. Yeah. Um, who were the first European explorers to, to come and learn about that area or experience that area? Well, after the 1300 era, probably the first traverse by people of European descent of the Glen Canyon was the uh, Dominguez Escalante expedition, mm -hmm. which encountered Glen Canyon in November of 1776. Dominguez and Escalante were Franciscan priests, and their mission, they set out from Santa Fe on July the 4th, interestingly, of 1776, and their mission was to find a route from the Spanish settlements in New Mexico, what the Spanish called the Inland Empire, to the Spanish missions in California. The topography forced this expedition further north and further east than they ever intended. They eventually found a way across the Green River at, uh, in far northern Utah, at the little village of what we now call Jensen, Utah, and headed straight west and found themselves on the shore of Utah Lake in November. Uh, they consulted with the local Indians, told them what they wanted to do. The local Indians more or less said, huh, you're not going to get there this year. Uh, we all know about the Donner Party, right? Started too late to try to cross the Sierra. So Fathers Escalante and Dominguez took the Indians' advice and decided to head for home. Uh, they headed south and west, crossed the what they now call the Escalante Desert west of Cedar City, picked up the valley of the Perea River, and eventually ended up on the banks of the Colorado at what is now Lee's Ferry. They determined that the water was too swift and too deep there for a crossing. So they went up the Perea just a little ways, climbed the cliffs and headed north, trying to find a, a way to cross to get home. The situation was pretty desperate for them at that point. They had run out of food. Uh, there was shortage of water, and it was cold. It was deathly cold. They were reduced to eating their horses, which if you're on an expedition where you're counting all the horses to carry you and your goods, that's desperate. They eventually found a crossing, uh, just a little way above Mexican Bar, approximately mile 36 in Glen Canyon. Managed to cross at a point now called Crossing of the Fathers. They reached the far bank, shot off their muskets in celebration, headed for home. They reached there in January of 1777, grateful just to be alive. That's the first traverse of Glen Canyon we know of by mm -hmm. uh, non-native peoples. So, um, would you walk us through a little bit the decision to dam Glen Canyon? Um, what were the steps that were in process, and who attempted to fight it or didn't? Yeah, how did that well come to be? You have to go back to 1915 when the the first attempt at using the Colorado River for agriculture was begun. There were these two guys, and I can't remember their names right offhand or right off the top of my head, but they thought. There's this area in Colorado, in California, which at the time was called the Valley of the Dead. Uh, it was so hot. And they determined that there was great alluvial soil there and a climate where you could grow stuff in the winter. Mm -hmm. All you had to do was get water to it. So what they did was they decided we could divert some of the Colorado River and let it flow north through a defile called Alamo Wash. And it could irrigate these farms. So they put in some head gates in Mexico along the Colorado River and diverted some of the Colorado River through Alamo Wash up north. 
Now, the thing that these two guys didn't realize was this was a channel that the Colorado River had been prone to use from time to time. The Colorado would flow into the Gulf of Mexico, a Gulf of California, excuse me. It would silt up. Then the river would turn and head north through the Alamo Wash into California. Then yeah, that would silt up and the river would be back. And it was doing this regular pattern. Yeah, as geology well, does. This one particular year, there was a huge amount of water on the... Colorado, Utah, Arizona uplands, and it came roaring down through this area in the spring. It overcame the head gates, and pretty soon all of the Colorado River was flowing through Alamo Wash north. Um, it washed away farms, it washed away railroad tracks, buried entire villages before they finally got the thing under control and had the Colorado River back flowing to the Gulf of California again. California knew at that point that something had to be done. If they were going to use the Colorado River for agriculture and drinking water purposes, which is what they desperately wanted to do, that something had to be done to control the river. California didn't have the money for the structures that would have been necessary. They had to contact the federal government for that. In the meantime, there had been a Supreme Court decision called Wyoming versus Colorado, where the Supreme Court had determined that in Western rivers, first in use was first in right. The upper basin states saw what California was attempting to do, and they said, if California gets this water, even though all the water comes from our states, we're screwed. So the states in the upper basin, Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, New Mexico, et cetera, said, no, you guys aren't going to do this by yourselves. We're going to have a hand in it. And so there was formed a Colorado River Commission, which got together and tried to figure out how to divide the waters. They actually signed a treaty, which is prohibited under the Constitution, except and unless the federal government agrees to it. So the, the basin states of the uh, uh, Colorado River Basin got together and said, okay, here's, what we're, here's how we're going to do it. The first job they had was to figure out how much water there was in the river. Nobody knew how much water there was in the river. The only gauging station in the entire Colorado River was at Yuma, and it hadn't been there very long. But when they took the records of the gauging station at Yuma, what they saw was that the Colorado River was an incredibly diverse river. Some years, almost nothing came by the Yuma gauging station, and some years, there was so much water, you could almost not measure it. So nobody knew how much water. So that was first job. Eugene Clyde LaRue was a hydrologist with the uh, Bureau of Reclamation, United States Geological Survey. He had spent most of his life studying the Colorado River. And LaRue said, my guess, best guess is that there's about 50, you can count on over the long term, about 15 million acre feet of water that you could count on per year on average coming down the Colorado River. California said, oh no, that's way too little. It's closer to 20. The upper basin states, oh, it's way too much. It's closer to 11. Turned out the upper basin people had the best handle on it, but they agreed to accept LaRue's estimate of 15 million. So they said, okay, 7.5 million for each. Now, of course, that's on a long-term average. You're not gonna get that every year. Some years you're gonna get a lot more, some years you're not gonna get hardly anything. California was really ticked off, but they said, okay, we'll agree to this. They said, but here's the condition. You have to provide us with 7.5 million acre feet per year. We're taking it off the top. You guys in the upper basin states get what's left. We'll agree to it, but that's the condition under which we're going to, we're going to accept your, your estimate. Okay, so that meant that the upper basin states had to have a way to regulate the river so that 7.5 million acre feet of water would pass by the uh, gauging station at Lee's Ferry, Arizona every single year. So what the upper basin states committed to providing was about 8.2 million acre feet of water per year. In order to provide that, they had to have a way to regulate the river so that that could be provided. In dry years and wet years, that same amount of water had to go by the gauging station at Lee's Ferry. That meant there had to be a dam in Glen Canyon below the San Juan River. That's why the Glen Canyon Dam was built. The Glen Canyon Dam was the absolute kingpin structure to make the Colorado River Storage Project work. Mm -hmm. Now, the upper basin states knew that, that the Colorado River wasn't going to provide that amount of water every year. So they got busy and built all kinds of structures all over the upper basin. 
We've got three reservoirs on the Gunnison River. We've got two major reservoirs on the San Juan, on the uh, Green River. We've got a major reservoir on the San Juan, and then lots of little smaller structures like Strawberry and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. um, so that they would get their share of the water. And the system's worked pretty well ever since, except for the fact that um, the Colorado River over the last dozen years has not been providing the kind of flow that is necessary to keep Lake Powell filled at a level where you can keep providing that amount of water. Mm -hmm. Now, the Bureau of Reclamation sort of boxed themselves in the corner. They said, okay, we'll finance it, but it's not going to be on the taxpayer's dime. Uh, This is going to have to be paid for. Now, with the Hoover Dam water, the people who are receiving the water are paying for it because in the Imperial Valley, you could grow vegetables and sell for real money. Uh, The people in Los Angeles who are getting the drinking water from uh, Lake Mead were also paying for it. In the upper basin states, they were growing alfalfa and stuff like that. There's no way they were paying for it. So the Bureau of Reclamation said, well, we'll put... We'll put a power plant on the, on the reservoirs, and that'll generate electricity. We'll sell the electricity, that'll pay. Okay? It was not supposed to be on the backs of the taxpayers. But see, now Lake Powell has reached the point where it's in danger of not being able to produce yeah. power anymore. Yeah. That has a Bureau of Reclamation just absolutely going apoplectic, because if they lose the revenues from Glen Canyon Dam, uh, they're in serious trouble. It's crazy how we got here. So the motive to dictate the water flow and where the water went is what um, led to Glen Canyon Dam being built. You had to provide a way for the upper basin states to deliver on their promise. I think it's interesting to note here. My understanding of that meeting for that compact you're referencing didn't include any of the indigenous peoples from the upper basin states. No, no, no. We didn't utilize any of the wisdom that they'd used to interact with the waterway. No, that's right. It was all... uh, Herbert Hoover was chair of the commission. Yeah. And in my book, Rainbow Bridge, I've got all of the people who were there. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can't remember all the names of who were there, but uh, yeah. Yeah, it was a handful of people. Was it in New Mexico? Yeah, that's where they finally hammered it out. Yeah. It's worth noting that the reason this came to be is both sides were desperate both sides wanted an agreement, yeah. and they wanted it in the worst way. Nobody was willing to walk away from that conference with no agreement. Yeah. So that's how they came to an agreement. They both wanted it bad. Didn't David Brower, president of the Sierra Club, mm-hmm. um, he was negotiating where dams would get built along both the Green and the Colorado Rivers? Well, Brower got into, the, into this and the Sierra Club into this, uh, not because of Glen Canyon, but because of Dinosaur National mm-hmm. Monument. When the Bureau of Reclamation published its findings on dam sites and reservoir possibilities in the upper basin, they proposed uh, two dams uh, in right smack dab in the middle of Dinosaur National Monument. Now, this had happened once before with Yosemite. Uh, The city of San Francisco had persuaded the federal government to build a dam at Hetch Hetchy, Uh, which flooded a valley which was called Little Yosemite. Mm -hmm. It was already in the national park, but they dammed it anyway. The Sierra Club and the people that were in the know in the conservation movement at the time, which, by the way, wasn't very large or even very powerful or influential, they saw that threat to dinosaur as the final nail in the coffin for the national park system. If you allowed it again, this was the end. And so even though nobody had seen much of dinosaur, knew the the scenic potential or any of that other stuff, they were determined they were going to fight those dams Mm -hmm. to the bitter end. Uh, Brower took 105 people down the Yampa and uh, convinced the club that this was a battle worth fighting. And so he and Wallace Stegner and... uh, Wilderness Society and the Society of American Garden Clubs and uh, fishing and hunting groups, and they got a coalition together in a letter-writing campaign. Brower put together a couple of movies that he showed to members of Congress, and they had a book that Wallace Stegner uh, authored called This is Dinosaur, uh, the Echo Park Country and its Magic Rivers. And he put the copy of that on the desk of every congressman and senator. And the battle was joined. They ended up defeating those dams. The dams were uh, taken out, 
and a special provision was put in the Upper Colorado River Storage Project Act, which stated that no dam or reservoir can intrude into any national park or monument. They also put in another provision separate in the same bill that said that the waters of Lake Powell could not intrude into Rainbow Bridge National Monument. Brower won that fight, and it was a big fight, and it was an important fight. He figured about halfway through this battle that he had the votes in Congress to stop the Colorado River Storage Project completely. He went to the board of the Sierra Club, and the Sierra Club says, No, Dave, that was not what we got into this battle for. We're not trying to stop development in the Colorado Plateau. We're trying to stop these two dams. The Sierra Club figured that if we changed tactics in the middle of the stream, that they would lose the support of many of the organizations that helped build the coalition, and they were probably right. So Brower said, okay, he went back and, and won the fight over uh, Dinosaur, but there was never a fight over Glen Canyon. The fight that ensued was over Rainbow Bridge. The Bureau of Reclamation sent its surveying teams into Bridge and Aztec Creeks and identified four sites where protective structures could be built that would have prevented Lake Powell from intruding into Rainbow Bridge National Monument. Congress, by contrast, refused to appropriate the money for any of them. Not only did they refuse to appropriate the money, they stated in their appropriation bills year after year that no monies under this appropriation can be used for the construction of protective works uh, to protect Rainbow Bridge National Monument. Uh, this eventually landed right smack dab on the desk of Stuart Udall, who is the new Secretary of the Interior under Kennedy and Johnson. They tried one more time to get Congress to appropriate the money. Congress refused. They never again submitted another budget with those protective works. So when the gates were closed at Glen Canyon Dam on January the 21st of 1963, Rainbow Bridge remained unprotected. Brower continued fighting that battle. His reasoning was that you cannot close the gates at Glen Canyon Dam until Rainbow Bridge is protected. The battle went all the way to the Supreme Court. The battle was won in a district court in Utah. It was appealed to the Ninth Circuit in Denver. The Ninth Circuit reversed the initial decision from the Utah uh, court. They said that by refusing to appropriate the money, Congress had, in fact, de facto repealed the protective measures for Rainbow Bridge. The measure got to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court refused to take the case. It lost by one vote. So there you are. Uh, Rainbow Bridge was flooded. Uh, in 1983, the water in the Rainbow Bridge was 53 feet deep. Uh, it's been receding steadily since then. In fact, there hasn't been any water in, the Rainbow, in Rainbow Bridge National Monument for at least 15 years that I know of. So, Brower really won, but he didn't think he had. Interestingly, the same day that the gates were closed at Glen Canyon Dam, uh, that January 1st date, uh, Udall and his secretary of, or commissioner of the Bureau of Reclamation announced plans to put two dams in Grand Canyon, uh, one in Marble Gorge, one at the junction of Grand Canyon and Bridge Canyon. Brower could not believe what was happening. He had just prevented them from damming Dinosaur National Monument up in northern Utah, a place very few people had ever even heard of. This was not some remote national monument up in Utah or some real scenic canyon out in the middle of nowhere. This was the Grand Canyon, for heaven's sake. And Brower fought this too. He used exactly the same tactics at Grand Canyon he used in Dinosaur. Published the book, got the letter-writing campaign going, got the Coalition of Conservation Organizations. He didn't look like he was going to win. But right smack dab in the middle of this controversy, the Internal Revenue Service canceled the tax-exempt status uh, of the Sierra Club. This got people really, really upset. People were more upset about that than they were about damming the Grand Canyon. Eventually, Reclamation was forced to pull those two dams. Now, what's interesting about those two dams is their purpose was to generate electricity to operate the pumps that pump the water from Lake Mead into the Central Arizona Project Canals. The Result was they had to find another source of electricity, so they built the power plant at Page. The dams are not there. The power plant at Page is not there. 
And there never was a need for it for either one of them. But Grand Canyon was saved. Uh, Brower lost his job as a result. He was a kind of a lone wolf guy. He did a lot of stuff without consulting the board of the directors of the Sierra Club. He spent a lot of the money the club didn't have. And the club finally got together and said, we've had enough of you, Dave. They fired him. Uh, he went ahead and formed another conservation organization called Friends of the Earth, which continued fighting the Rainbow Bridge controversy, which, of course, he eventually lost. Mm -hmm. What is he quoted as saying? Uh, there's a quote. I think you have it in your exhibit. Uh, what is he quoted as saying about the Glen Canyon area? Well, Brower said that when we dammed Glen Canyon, we lost wholeness, integrity of the place. He called it the place no one knew. And the book he wrote about Glen Canyon as a requiem for the place mm -hmm. was called The Place No One Knew. Mm -hmm. Because it was this remarkable area that hadn't been explored well, very much. Actually, there were probably a lot more people that had floated through Glen Canyon than had ever even heard of Dinosaur National Monument. It wasn't really the place no one knew. What Dave was implying with the title of his book was, it was a place no one knew well enough. It was an area that got flooded. So Glen Canyon itself was this un unbelievable area. Yep. But like you had mentioned previously, there's all this documentation, pictures. We have an understanding of the history of uh, European explorers or early settler explorers. We have the little bits we know about the indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. And so the ways that we can get in touch with it is by the documentation that exists of it. And you've created the special mm -hmm. collections mm -hmm. at NAU. If I yep. understand right, tours run through July, or the exhibit runs through we're, July. We're doing a tour for anybody that wants to stop by the first Thursday of every month. Yeah. But we'll I'll do a tour for anybody that wants one at almost any time. All yeah. they have to do is call me up and say, I'd sure like to take me and my husband or my class or my kids or whatever. Uh, would you do a tour? I'll be happy to do that. Yeah. And in there, you have the images. You mentioned um, NAU has become a repository for information like this. Well, the reason why this exhibit came to be was I knew what was up there in special collections because of these special collections that I had worked on. I consider that Klein Library at NAU has the best collection of pre-damned Glen Canyon photographs that exist anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got the Eisman collection, we've got the uh, Nichols collection, you got the Sprang collection. All of these were really focused in many ways on Glen and Grand Canyons. Mm -hmm. And nobody else has stuff like we have. And so you curated pieces mm -hmm. from that uh, collection uh, to exhibit, and you, you organize it mm -hmm. so it follows the flow of the river. Starting well, that's the, way, that's the way I conceived of it. We start out, we have the original 1953 maps that were done of Glen Canyon. Mm -hmm. So we've got all the maps, and that's where the exhibit starts. And then we run clockwise around the special collections area, uh, mile by mile, just as if you were floating down the river. Mm -hmm. And I tried to tell three stories in that exhibit. I wanted to tell the prehistory, the archaeology of the place. I wanted to tell the human history of the place as we know it today. Uh, from Cass Height on down, and then I wanted to show the scenery. Um, so there were three things I was trying to do, all in this rather limited space. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was decently successful. Mm -hmm. We also have a collection of 14 photographs downstairs in the library coffee shop called Scholar's Corner, uh, where I strictly went by scenery. Some of the very best pictures that we have of Glen Canyon are in the coffee shop. And then we also have a further extension of the exhibit with another dozen pictures in a hallway right off the entrance to the Klein Library. So people have three places to go where they can see uh, all the pictures. You know, we don't know what's going to happen for sure because water levels do continue to, dro to drop. And it may never be the same as what those images show with the document because of how it's changed from being flooded. But the best way we can connect it with it right now is through those images. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Yep, that's why we titled the exhibit Images of a Lost World. Because as Katie Lee pointed out, it's never going to be the way it was, not in our lifetime. Not in our lifetime. Maybe someday. Um, the other thing is, you know, the, what we know about the Colorado River is, is amazingly variable. Uh, we could easily get this year with what 
the water that's in the snow in Colorado and Utah and high country of Arizona and so forth, we could easily get 60 feet of rise in Lake Powell this year. Well, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge about the area. Um, we, When we have guests on, we like to ask them, how would you define Flagstaff? Well, two ways. I think it's, number one, an amazing place to live, uh, in spite of our atrocious climate. <laughs> <laughs> and it's probably the most beautiful area on the planet. Mm-hmm. And I say that for a person that's seen a lot of the planet. That there is, I think there's no place in the in the whole world that's equal to the Colorado Plateau. So that's an extra sentence. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, no! I appreciate you sharing. It's clear how it touches you, and I appreciate you yeah. uh, being willing to share that with us. Yeah, it's staggering to hear how much information you got stored in your noggin. So thank well, you for sharing that with us today. And yeah, a lot of research went into that. You can tell. Let me tell you. Yeah. Yeah. When you write a book about Rainbow Bridge and you have to cover the whole history of, of what happened, yeah. um, you do a lot of research and a lot of it stays in your brain. Yeah. 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 It was really special to learn from you about a lot today. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Cody will take an opportunity now to walk you through his camera roll to show you. Yeah. What's not special? <laughs> yeah. Keon's okay. special collection. <laughs> Yeah, if you need an unspecial collection for Klein, let me know. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Uh, Hank, we generally appreciate you uh, being willing to share your time and your thoughts with us. You're very Thank welcome. you. Appreciate the interest. How about uh, Hank? He develops special collections. You and I develop unspecial collections. Unspecial collections, yeah. We could build a libraries, monuments, yeah, <laughs> storerooms. <laughs> amount of material factories <laughs> warehouses full of unspecial collections yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of a lot of content it is pretty staggering the amount of content he does have that is special oh boy just stored up there in the noggin he uh one quick sidetrack is yeah. uh which will never be quick for you and i is uh, <laughs> it's, uh he he referenced the difficulty in writing a book or writing. He was he was talking about how difficult it was to write. And in that moment, I also had, in addition to the pictures we can add to the unspecial collection, mm-hmm. like your Christmas letters and the slew of things you write yeah. that uh, yeah. didn't seem strenuous to write, but maybe be strenuous to consume or to understand, <laughs> yeah. decipher. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Christmas letters. Basically, anytime I write anything. Yeah. Well, when you're in your phonetic mode. Yeah, it's strenuous content for any consumer, for sure. I mean, just to decipher. Yeah. It's enjoyable content. It's just <laughs> difficult to decipher. Just trying to read it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So writing, a, I think I relate to Hank pretty well on that. I think writing a book would be really pretty tough in that regard. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to write three to 400 pages of just phonetic content. Yeah. <laughs> Might take me a few decades, but worth it, maybe. Hashtag unspecial content. Unspecial content. That's going to be the name of the uh, yeah, collection. The memoir. Yeah, yeah, the collection. <laughs> Special collection. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Yeah. What did you take away with you? Golly, man. Uh, just for me, it was just like, uh, it reminded me of like, just kind of like pulling up around a campfire and listening to someone tell stories. Mm. And he's telling these uh, like historical facts, just like. At one after another after another it's just staggering to hear and piece together all of this history of this place um in such yeah like an accessible way and i can't imagine all the work that has gone into him learning and piecing that together and all of the questions he's asked mm-hmm. and the resources he's come upon mm-hmm. or references and that sort of thing i guess just in that moment I was feeling like wow this is sort of like all of that work coming together in this one conversation in a sense he probably has a really strong hippocampus, some of which he was born with, some of which he's grown through his efforts, and then his massive amount of study and yeah. consumption has just led to a magnificent amount of information stored up there. Totally. Yeah, it's amazing to, uh, to, to just hear him share all... Well, I guess we're really probably just scratching the surface for oh, an hour 15. Yeah. There's a lot more up there, but him to put that all together in just such a congruent concise way is pretty impressive yeah it's it's really impressive he can draw names facts dates yeah. just special drop stuff of a hat right yeah. out of there i actually think um also the points at which i don't know if it came across this way but it seemed really to touch him when he spoke about the environmental aspect of it or the fact that it was a lost world even naming it that 
him referencing all that was down there geologically, geographically, that yeah. is missed, um, you know, seemed to really touch him in an emotional way. Yeah, he teared up a couple of times, yeah. Seemed that way. Yeah. Yeah. He just seemed really connected to this land, this region, that we need to be conscientious about it and make wise decisions with it, um, yeah. not in a way where he he declaratively states what he knows or what what we should do, per mm -hmm. se, but that we need to be considerate about what we do. Yeah, he kind of acknowledges the reality of how things are with stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Just, yeah, doesn't really throw that away. It's like, this is kind of how it is, and I can't necessarily just hit control, I'll delete with a lot of these things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so it is what it is, but also maybe just our general approach should be more conscientious as we're approaching things, because the decisions we make now are probably going to be called into question in 20 years. Yeah. Um, but were the premises of the decisions we make now, are they... Are they um, you know, do they involve introspection, reflection, connection to the land, connection to each other? Yeah, yeah. I thought that was a real poignant part of the conversation, really, was um, when he was talking about the history of the pact, right, in mm -hmm. California and the upper basin states negotiating. And he brought up the point, like, these are all just people from these states making this decision. People who originally occupied the land had no input on that. Well, well it is interesting because he referenced this that's written into the pact that um, whoever used the water first got ownership of the water. Yeah. And um, it was none of those people. <laughs> first right. First in, yeah. first in use, first in right. Yeah. First in use, first in right. Yeah. Um, really uh, swinging a miss. By default, actually has never been put yeah. into place yeah totally so and it's pretty wild to see just how like even that kind of tenant has had effects on uh the river decades and decades yeah, and decades later yeah. right? just and, that. and that's that part where being conscientious it's easy to make sweeping decisions but um yeah yeah i mean making sweeping decisions that are conscientious of the river as a river that existed for millions of years rather than our contact with it over a couple hundred yeah totally yeah, so I thought that was a really great part of the conversation and really appreciate for Hank's perspective on that and his ability, again, to just draw in and bring the history yeah. into that. Yeah. And then lastly, just him tolerating sitting with a couple of yahoos. Golly, he looked really impressed at times, I'd say, huh? Is that, is that what came across? <laughs> that came across to you? I thought he was impressed by the idea for an unspecial collection. <laughs> I don't think that had crossed his mind before. I think you. I think you found a few moments mildly humorous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just kind of have this idea of him like at Klein Library and just sort of like a couple, uh, maybe <laughs> maybe like a couple of those like file folders of just our own junk shows up, and it's like here's the Bayless collection. <laughs> the Bayless collection. Yeah. Here's the Beyond the Here's the Beyond the Files collection. collection. Yeah. <laughs> And Hank, as the principal cataloger, just take those straight out back to the dumpster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do we do with these digital files? This is great. Just kind of cast this to the uh, the fill. Yeah. This is the Beyond the Pines collection. In all my years as principal cataloger, yeah. have I I've never encountered something so useless. Yeah, just such a pile of dung. Yeah. Whatever. This is the Phillips collection. Great stuff. His shoes yeah. on the trail. Yeah. Another photo of Dan's bicycle by Lake Mary. By the way, yeah. you should you should be saying thank you. Just yesterday, I uh, I did uphill up to Eldon Lookout, and for a couple of minutes, I debated yeah. taking a picture of my skis and opted wish. not to. I wish you did. Yeah, yeah. Phillips skis on the top of Lookout. I realized I realized the world doesn't need it. I don't know, man. I mean, it could make its way into an unspecial collection someday. That could <laughs> yeah. be very special for someone who yeah. finds some sick jollies in unspecial yeah. collections. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think what the world needs more of is people thinking, ah, I don't think the world needs this. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag not everyone needs a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you take us out by shouting us out? <laughs> no doubt. You can always find us on the interwebs www.beyondflag.com flag spelled FLG and we are on the Instagram and I guess we technically still have a Twitter account we are also beyond <laughs> underscore flag <laughs> come on alright we'll take care loveys
Yeah, it's got to be a real combination of capacity and effort. So the yeah. effort you're highlighting and then also just the brain structures to be able to retain that, which he's probably grown, right? Like his... Uh, yeah. his uh, Different than that. <laughs> Was that a fart? Or are you stretching? <laughs> a brain one. <laughs> What's the name of the mechanism that's responsible for memory? <laughs> The uh, hippocampus. 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 That's, That's the, the one. one. That's Which, a ticket. I always thought it would be a really fun Halloween costume. Hippocampus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you dress up, dress up like a hippopotamus and then like have this like uh, campus campus of some sort. Yeah. <laughs> I I don't follow. I don't know. I, my brain doesn't fathom what a campus would look like. <clears throat> you know, like um, those like when. What, what would this be like a uh, prototype of like some structure gets created and it's on like a very small scale? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, <laughs> so, so I just kind of wear that. Hippo costume <laughs> yes, with like, like a, a square, yes, mini scale <laughs> campus. You got it, my friend. Like a Harvard of the West just around yeah, the man. waist. Yeah, absolutely. You got San Francisco Street going up one side, maybe yeah. melting up the other. Yeah, 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 man. Come on. I see. I see. Yeah. All while you're dressed like a hippopotamus. Yeah, you must yeah. be the vision guy. <laughs> Creative just, director. Just a pair of suspenders. <laughs> Vendors that <laughs> yeah, just a creative director. Yeah, you kind of carried around like the people at like a ball game or selling popcorn. You yeah, know I mean? yeah, yeah. You just got a campus, a hippocampus, a hippocampus, which is responsible for memory. 